With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, let's talk politics for just a moment. And uh, the fact that Pete Buttigieg won the Iowa caucuses uh, by 0.1% over Bernie Sanders, which means that Pete Buttigieg has 13 votes, 13, uh, the 13 delegates versus Bernie Sanders, 12 delegates out of a total of almost 2,000 delegates of which a thousand basically are needed to win the nomination. So Pete Buttigieg at 13 on his way. But as much as we make fun of that, because the Iowa caucus really has collapsed, uh, probably the caucus system, keep in mind that Buttigieg launched his presidential bid uh, in January of 2019, a year ago. Did anybody hear of him? He is a former mayor of, well, this is pretty impressive, Indiana's fourth largest city. 100,000 people. Fewer people than Burbank. Former mayor, and he's on his way, and he's actually become a player. And there, oh, man, there's uh, a lot to say about him. What a a political phenomenon he is. Openly gay. Uh, declared his uh, very unexpected victory in uh, the first contest of the uh, presidential race. Now, think about this for a moment. Uh, when, you know, what are the chances when you talk about this? He has outlasted senators and governors and mayors of cities that have in the millions of inhabitants. And there he is, one of the top four or five players. Matter of fact, he is in the top four. Now, he has all kinds of problems. He's going to be right up there with New Hampshire and then come South Carolina. And at that point, he is, well, question is, does he stay in the race after South Carolina? Probably because he's going to be, well, he's going to be decimated in South Carolina. But come Super Tuesday, we'll have an idea of where he stands. The problem he has in South Carolina is uh, the number of African-American voters. He has the distinction with uh, Amy Klobuchar of having exactly 0% support in the African-American community. And when I say 0%, that's not an exaggeration. That's me being the hyperbolic. No, he is 0%. He has 0% statistically, poll-wise. And that is hard to overcome. So we'll uh, see what's going on. Also, because he's become a front runner, front runner, now he is being attacked by the uh, other candidates for being number one, the mayor of uh, the former mayor of a city of a hundred thousand, and his 
support in the African-American community is, well, we know that it's zero, but he has some real issues when what happened with South Bend. So you've got South Carolina coming up. Nevada, uh, don't know what his uh, approval ratings are. Now, keep in mind, give you an idea of where this guy came from. Uh, the chairman of the New Hampshire Democratic Party, a guy by the name of Ray Buckley, uh, got calls from 40 Democrats exploring presidential runs this year. And dozens of potentials have gone through his state over the years because, of course, uh, it's New Hampshire. Incidentally, candidates for the president meet everyone in New Hampshire. Anyone who wants to meet the candidate can meet the candidate. And I'm talking about at small dinner parties. I mean, they're out there talking. For example, here we are in California, a state of 40 million people. Why don't you have a dinner party with one of the big guys? Why don't you sit down? You know what? I'd like to have dinner with Pete Buttigieg. What do you think? New Hampshire, you can pull it off. There's so few people. And uh, Buckley, uh, the chair of the New Hampshire Democratic Party, said nobody has done what Buttigieg has done. He's never seen someone rise faster. Now, Buckley himself is gay. And he recalls the horror fear about being in politics after Harvey Milk. Remember the Harvey Milk murder? Uh, He was a member of the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco, and it was assassinated in 1978. And he said, we've gone from there to here. Buttigieg has some issues, not only the African-American support, but also his donor, the rank of donors is the very wealthy people. And you've got Sanders saying, I don't take money from billionaires. He does. And keep in mind that Sanders' platform is the billionaires are making all the money. The rest of us aren't. So we'll see what happens tomorrow and where Buttigieg stands. And I think he's going to do okay tomorrow. He may even win it tomorrow. Although probably it's going to be Sanders because he's in that area and uh, he is next door. His state is next door. So what's going to happen? I don't know. Unfortunately, and I'm a fan of Buttigieg, by the way. If I had to vote today for uh, president, I would vote for Buttigieg. I just like the guy. I just like the way he speaks. I like his background. He speaks, what, five languages. Uh, he was, He's a veteran. I kind of like that he's gay, Uh, not on a personal level, you know, some of my best friends are gay, but that doesn't mean I, you know, I just don't want to, you know, give you an idea. Although I I like gay people, you know. Okay, enough said, huh? (laughs) All right, I misspoke uh, about uh, the... uh, uh, 19, the 1971 quake, uh, it was the Silmar quake, not the Northridge quake. And I conflated the two because I was here both times and it was pretty uh, uh, pretty impressive, if that's the word you want to lose, as to the power of those earthquakes. Now, uh, the 71 Silmar quake, I want to talk about West L.A. You know, there's a Veterans Administration in West L.A. There's also that huge Veterans Cemetery, uh, which covers acres and acres. And uh, next to it is the campus of the Veterans Administration with a bunch of buildings on it, including the Wadsworth Theater. And when we talk about the veterans being homeless, that is one of the biggest problems because 
of the percentage of homeless people out there, a huge number are veterans. And when we talk about housing homeless people and permanent housing, it's in units of 50. We're putting up 40 units. Isn't that terrific? And long term, we're going to put up, oh, I don't know, 300 units. And it's costing us $500,000. When the quake hit 50 years ago, 2,800 veterans lived on the campus in housing on a couple of uh, in a, in a couple of buildings. As a matter of fact, the land there was used primarily as housing for veterans from 1888 until 1972. And then the earthquake, of course, happened, and all of these uh, veter- uh, veterans had to move because they had to close down what was then the largest veterans housing development in the United States. Well, one of the buildings, Building 207, if it's finished on schedule, it'll end half a century of these buildings not being used since 1972 and just rotting. And now they're going to come back and try Well, and they will, they'll make some inroads. Since then, of course, can you imagine the number of homeless veterans that are out on the street? In the last 50 years, the numbers of uh, veterans have exploded. And at that time, uh, the only veterans that really were out on the street were those from the Vietnam War. And those were very few and far between compared to now. This was a mass eviction. And we're not talking about policy. We're talking about this particular earthquake seeded the rot. And it set the stage for leases and uh, decades of neglect. And there was a lawsuit in 2011, which had a lot to do with housing veterans and how badly veterans have been treated. And the Silmar quake killed 58 people. Uh, 49 of them died at the Silmar VA. And two of the hospital buildings collapsed. That's where everybody died. I also want to point out the Silmar Quake Olive View Hospital, which was a brand new facility, a new hospital. Uh, it, uh, I think the land was owned by the county because it had been a tuberculosis sanitarium, one of the late, last tuberculosis sanitariums that existed in the United States. And that was Olive View. And then it became the Olive View Medical Center. And my mother was a lab tech. At that time, a lab technician, and she the lab itself was in the basement. And when the building collapsed, one of the lab techs was killed in the basement. And she was scheduled to come to work an hour later. I mean, just one of those bizarre coincidences, like you miss an airplane flight, and the plane goes down, and you shake your head. You go, my God, I could have been there. That's exactly what happened to my mom. At the time, but uh, it's it's coming back. The Veterans Administration is coming back and they are going to house. And I think uh, they're looking at housing uh, hundreds of the veterans, maybe a thousand. We don't know the exact figure yet. And, you know, this is uh, great news, Uh, by the way. Official estimates. Uh, from the mid-1980s puts uh, our population in L.A. 30 to 50,000, but 
those the numbers that came out of that era very uh, far less reliable because uh, we just didn't have the capability. We didn't know what we were doing. It wasn't that important. It wasn't a front burner. Now, at the time, the homeless were uh, were believed to be about a third veterans. Today on the West Side, we're looking at about half. So at least that's one area that we're going and taking older buildings. And in this case, buildings that were destroyed in 1971 and refurbishing them. And that is one of the big, big answers because we're not talking about $500,000 a unit here. All right. Now, uh, a little bit about housing. There was, we've talked about this before, Senate Bill 50, uh, which uh, was introduced uh, for the third time. Senator Scott Weiner of San Francisco who authored it. And this would... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Have forced cities and counties to allow mid-rise apartments and fourplexes near mass transit areas. And uh, this, is, this would, in fact, in fact say, uh, a, affect single-family neighborhoods. It changes single-family neighborhoods around these uh, mass transit locations. We're talking about uh, subway stations, uh, bus centers, that sort of thing. And it has a lot more oomph in Northern California than here. If it is going to pass eventually, it's not going to be because of Southern California. It's going to be because of the Bay Area. And uh, what's the big reason? Well, because you can't buy a home under any circumstances in the Bay Area. As expensive as it is in L.A., for example, at half a million dollars, median price or $550,000, something along those lines. The median home price in San Francisco is a stunning $1.4 million. So one of the political considerations is say, you know what? No one is ever going to buy a house. So let's take some of these older neighborhoods or near transit uh, stops and let's go ahead and uh, be able to create fourplexes and uh, mid, uh, mid-height uh, apartments or low-rise apartments, actually. And so it really is San Francisco that this is all about. However... The campaign for this uh, Alliance for Community Transit in L.A., Uh, this is an organization that uh, increases or wants to increase housing near a uh, transit stop 
and is against the SB, uh, SB 50, says, you know, because it works in the Bay Area, it doesn't exactly work in our region. Uh, first of all, because there is relatively affordable housing because the neighborhoods here have tremendous clout. Every time you turn around, there is a neighborhood uh, groups that have formed to file lawsuits. And you don't, it, it's more affordable. So at least it's not completely crazy. And so there's a lot of political opposition here, much more than up north. And the other thing is, what ended up happening is developers here, uh, they're going, wait a minute, uh, because we are forced to, for example, if you have a larger than a 10-unit project, there has to be funding, uh, funding or space uh, that has to be set aside for low-income housing. Well, in San Francisco, there's no such thing as low-income housing. Under any circumstances, can you imagine if the median price is $1.4 million? The only way you're going to be able to get low-income subsidized housing near there is for the government to... Can you imagine subsidizing uh, something that's a million dollars or north? You can't do it. So what happened is Wiener, for the third time, changed the bill this year. He lost... the first, as a matter of fact, he's lost all three years. And what he's done... Okay, tell you what. Instead of cramming this down your throat... We're going to give cities and counties two years to develop their own blueprints for growth. That could maybe be an alternative to SB 50. And However, local governments would still have to allow fourplexes in single-family neighborhoods. Uh, but first, developers have to remodel existing homes rather than demolishing them and building new ones. Sort of, sort of a compromise. But... The other problem in all of this is that the local authorities, which historically has been have been in charge of all building, they're the ones that decide the planning departments are city, the zonings are city, the ability to build city. Well, all that pro- that is going to be taken away from the cities, and that is a big, big problem. Also, we have something called the Transit-Oriented Communities Program. This is a City of Los Angeles-controlled program where certain areas have, in fact, been set aside and uh, these parcels are controlled by this organization. The bill would exempt that. So that's why L.A., as important as it is, it's really going to be controlled up north. When we talk about housing and when we talk about denser housing, which I don't think there's there's any way to stop that. So right now, the advantages of being right near a transit hub and living in a great neighborhood, well, you're going to have uh, denser housing and all of a sudden property values are going to drop pretty dramatically. But something's got to give. I mean, we're up against a problem that uh, I think is virtually insurmountable. So something has to give. All right. I don't know if you have heard of uh, the Swedish uh, term uh, flysgum or flyscum. I don't speak a lot of uh, Swedish other than sauna and sex. So uh, what? You know, Swedish Swedish terms. You know, everybody knows. Anyway. Oh, sure. Uh, it's flight shame is what it is. And uh, Greta Thunberg, who is that teenager, of course, has been the voice of uh, climate change. 
uh, or the last couple of years is uh, she has said and talked about flight shame and people pay a lot of attention to what she said. So flight shame is all about not flying on airliners because of the environmental impact. Right. Look at the uh, look at the pollutants that come out of the uh, of an airplane engine, of a jet engine, which affects the environment, which affects global warming. Uh, And so what she is saying is think of an alternative way of travel. This is huge in Europe and it's it is really has uh, taken off in Europe. But there are a couple of reasons for it. What she says or or what other uh, flight shame proponents say is uh, take a take rail, take a bus, because if you look at rail, it's a tiny uh, percentage of what a, an airplane produces in terms of pollutants. Much more efficient and less polluting. But here's the issue: in Europe, you can do that all day long. They have the fast trains. The distances between cities and countries is. Not very much. It's much smaller. Here in the United States, you're going from one end of the United States to the other. We're talking 3,000 miles. There you go from Belgium to France. It's, it's 100 miles, 200 miles. So it makes it much easier. And so even though we're saying, oh, come on, the airlines are sweating bullets. And there we're seeing drops of 6% that are coming with the airlines. Now, Airline travel globally has increased about 5% each year over the past decade. In 2019, the rate slowed to 4%. And now it's starting to go down even more. So Citigroup in October says this is a real threat to the airline industry. And so what can be done? Oh, incidentally, in terms of inefficiency and pollutants, Hollywood stars who are at the height of... Uh, environmental controls and environmental issues. You know how they fly or you know how they travel around? Yep, private airplanes. You bet. So you have three people on a jet that is producing enormous amounts of pollutants. The difference between, let's say, a 740 or a 737, the ones that are still flying, uh, in terms of the amount of pollutants that it pumps out in the environment is not that much more than a Gulfstream jet, maybe two, three times as much. But you put 200 people on one of those airliners, 150, 180 people. Uh, when you're talking about a private jet, there's three people or five people on there. So the airlines are all sweating bullets, and they're talking about alternative energy, biofuels. There are companies that make bio airline uh airline fuel for example united airlines uh, just announced that it's uh, increasing its purchase of biofuels which by the way really doesn't do much because it's just you know one tenth of one percent it's a political statement and so they're saying we're moving towards alternative fuels jet blue says uh beginning 2020 july of 2020 they're going to use alternative fuel sources for all flights leaving from San Francisco. What a shocker, San Francisco. So what are these alternative fuels? Well, uh, maybe steam boilers in the airplanes that produce uh, very little pollutants. Just these big honking boilers. That's not going to work, is it? 
No, Solo, it's a great idea. See that they should talk to me about uh, what what. Uh, just I know how no, to. No, they run. shouldn't. Yes, they should. <laughs> because uh, all right, so you couldn't get too many people in an airplane. It couldn't actually get off the ground, but it will be carbon neutral. Well, and so it's don't don't you find it astounding that you have one little girl? What is she? Sixteen now. Yeah. Who has such unbelievable impact. By the way, she's on the short list of a Nobel Peace Prize uh, for the last couple of years, and she is going to win it. There's no question about it. So next time you get on an airplane, I want you to really think about the kind of environmental impact this has on climate change. Just consider what you are doing in terms of flying on the airliner. And hopefully some of you will decide to go and, uh, and take alternative transportation, which means there'll be more room for me I was just on that ask. airplane. What do you think? Good God. You know how crowded airplanes are? They drive you nuts. When's the last time you were on a bus? <sighs> College, maybe. I took a Greyhound across the country, <laughs> but that's from San Jose to New York to cover 9/11. You couldn't do that straight. That's impossible. Wow. Four days. Uh, isn't that special? Yeah. Uh, but it's very efficient. It was. It but was think about efficient. that. I you saw have a lot of the country. You have 45, 50 people. Yeah. On a bus, which maybe produces three times, four times, the pollution that a car does, and then they have buses that are electric buses. They have buses that are propane, that are uh, natural gas, which produces a fraction. I just want you to think. If you're going to the airport at the same time I am, t- go to the bus station. You're right. Do what uh, Jennifer Jones Lee did. You know, give me a break. Okay. Uh, more news on the coronavirus, and uh, it is not good news. We're now heard, we've now heard 910 people have died and 20,000 people infected. Now, the numbers are relatively small. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you talk about worldwide, uh, worldwide, worldwide infection, it's a pandemic which has gone across two continents or more. That's the definition of a pandemic. But if you look back over the decades, these viral outbreaks fit a pattern that we now recognize, and it goes something like this. A virus that lives in animals makes the jump to humans, maybe in the live uh, animal market, like the one in Wuhan, which is currently being blamed. Uh, Maybe it comes from some other animal source. So people start getting sick, and by the way, it's always from an animal, or these viruses are. People start getting sick, and then they pass the infection around, and nobody pays attention for days or weeks, even months, uh, and... The majority of these cases are mild and go uh, unnoticed. So that's why it takes a while until people say, whoa, you've now got something else going on. And sometimes we're unaware because the authorities are keeping quiet, like in China, where most of these start. 
uh, to avoid panic or simply to avoid blame. And then all of a sudden, the outbreak is detected. Quote, it is detected. That's in quotes. Then the alarm sounds and the public takes notice. And here we are in a global medical crisis like we have been before. And it's the same pattern. All right. Uh, the outbreak of SARS in 2002, 2003, uh, the H1N1 in 2009, MERS in 2012, Ebola in 2014, the same pattern. The outbreak captures the attention of everybody, politicians around the world and the public, and every single time it ends, it's quelled, it goes down, and guess what happens? complacency kicks in and that's exactly what's going to happen here because well we really are unprepared and to be really prepared is i would even say is an impossibility i mean we have emergency response we're prepared for the earthquake right an earthquake happens here in southern california we have a plan for it And it's regionalized, which means we can get assets from all over the country to help. Uh, A terrorist attack, major terrorist attack. Again, first responders, we know what's happening. Wildfires, you know they're going to end. And you know they're up there if you happen to live in Nevada or you happen to live uh, Washington or whatever. Now, you help if you're a government organization, a government or organization or individuals volunteering. But when it comes to a pandemic, you never know where it's going to be. So, number one, you're sweating bullets. How fast is it? How many people? What's the incubation period? Because we don't know. And actually, we're tremendously vulnerable to this stuff. These emerging and unexpected threats, which include previously unknown organisms, something brand new, like HIV, or old pathogens like the coronavirus. It's very close to the other viruses. Matter of fact, it's pretty close to the cold. And they're showing up in new locations, maybe because of climate change, maybe because of agricultural practices that are changing, uh, certainly because we have highly mobile populations. That's one of the real downsides of the modern world. Someone catches the virus in Wuhan, and that afternoon, you have a plane, 300 people, that fly into San Francisco or Vancouver or Los Angeles, and before anybody figures out what it is, coronavirus has kicked in, and it started, and it's spreading like crazy. So, what do you do? Well, we're more prepared than we were. There are antiviral uh, tools. There are medications, not particularly effective, but far more effective. We have quarantine, stopping the spread. As a matter of fact, this time around, and uh, Jennifer reported this earlier, the number of cases actually went down for a few days. And now they're kicking up again. And we don't know uh, how this is going to end. We don't know how many people. Now, keep in mind that you have SARS and MERS, which is going to kill two or three, even 10% of those infected. But their uh, problem is they're not as transmissible. 
That's not a problem. That's the good news. The flu, which is one-tenth of one percent, I think, which is fatal. Tiny percentage. But it's one of the most transmittable diseases we have on the planet, like the cold. So the actual number of people who die are through the roof. Well, the bottom line here is we simply are not, and I don't know if we can be prepared for millions of people or at least tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands uh, to get this disease. And if you have a fatality rate of, let's say, 10%, which is astronomical, or 5%, which is astronomical, or 2%, which medically is considered astronomical, what do you do? Well, you plan, 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 but what's the problem? Oh, complacency. Wait till this thing runs its course, and then we're going to, oh, okay. And then we wait for the next one, right? So let me tell you what's going on with Amazon, and it's canceling its Nazis. Hmm. How? Well, over the past 18 months, it's removed two books by David Duke, uh, former leader of the KKK, several titles by George Lincoln Rockwell, uh, the founder of the American Nazi Party. Also, there are uh, titles like The Ruling Elite, The Zionist Seizure of World Power, and uh, one called A History of Central Banking and the Enslavement of Mankind. Of course, uh, all having to do with Jews. Now, Amazon said it has the right to publish or not publish books. But the issue here is third-party booksellers who stock Amazon's actually virtual shelves. And they ship out. And here's the problem also. They say Amazon... Uh, operates under non-existent rules. Amazon declines to provide a, a, a list of these books that are prohibited, how they're chosen, even discuss the topics. And uh, Amazon said, uh, you know, booksellers uh, make decisions every day about what selection of books they choose to offer. Effectively, we're a bookstore. And we just sell third-party books. In addition, uh, we sell others, other booksellers' books because, of course, everybody buys everything on Amazon. And it's a very interesting conversation. And it really is a First Amendment issue. Now, if you own a bookstore, uh, you can say no to whatever title you want. No Nazis, nothing about uh, the gay community, positive or negative. You can say whatever, you can sell whatever you want. Amazon is a different animal. Amazon sells to the world. And its influence is extraordinary. And so there is an argument to be had. Now, even its own Nazi-themed show, The Man in the High Castle, had to be cleaned up for a tribute book. Now, the series started in 2015. It ends in November. Uh, it's set in this parallel U.S. where the Germans and the Japanese win World War II. And it's nothing but swastikas all over the place. Well, Amazon has this tribute book, which of uh, Man in the High Castle. And it had to clean it up, remove all the swastikas, because it, uh, Germany is a huge market for itself. And uh, so, I mean, it's really weird. And so here is the problem with these booksellers. And they're saying, wait a minute, you sell Nazi stuff all day long on the website. Nazi memorabilia, for example, 
or reproductions of Nazi memorabilia. And they just, it is slowly denazifying. Now, I am not a huge fan of Nazis, as you may know. There are people that like Nazis a lot more than I do. But, you know, First Amendment? I mean, should I be able to buy Mein Kampf, for example, which, by the way, is still available on Amazon? Should I be able to buy uh, pro-Nazi, pro-racist, anti-black, anti-gay books, treatises? Yeah, I should be. I mean, this is America. And uh, there truly is a First Amendment issue. Nazis have the right to, in fact, proclaim their philosophy. In Germany, you can't have a swastika. Did you know that? It's against the law. You put a swastika, you're going to jail. It's, they're very, very sensitive to uh, having the Nazi regime run that country for 12 years. But, hey, you know, what, what do you do in the United States? What do you do? Do you say when it comes to that, it's a First Amendment issue? Now, I can see things that should not be published. For example, how to manufacture a bomb at home. That I can see, no. I can even see how, uh, how to make a ghost gun at home. Now, you can find that on the internet. Should you be able to buy a book about that? By the way, I don't even know if you can or not. I wonder if Amazon would allow that to, uh, to be published. And I don't know the answer to that. I mean, those, I can see the, the, the logic. I can see the First Amendment logic uh, to stop those. But I don't know the rest of it. And there's some really just insane stuff out there. Uh, there's ghost gun build. Okay. A book. Yep. On build Amazon. Own, yep. On yep. Amazon. Four ninety nine paperback. Build your own semi-auto auto handgun. Fifteen seventy two on Amazon. Uh, let's see. Wow. Yeah. You can get whatever you want. But you can't buy certain Nazi books. I guess not. <laughs> Yeah, I think Amazon's got some explaining to do, don't you? All right, uh, last night, the Oscars. And I, well, I'm not going to say the word unfortunately because I thought it was fascinating. Watched every minute of it. And I'm not surprised that it is getting more and more politically correct uh, and more, and I'm going to quote now, uh, give myself quotes, inclusive, more diverse, which it certainly was last night, to the point where, uh, who was it, uh, the the Maori um, uh, recipient? Uh, uh, what is his name? Taiko Waititi. Taiko Waititi. Yeah, where uh, I think his mother is Jewish. Waititi, Waititi. Yeah, and uh, his father, his mother is Jewish, his father is a Maori. And it was, a, I want to uh, recognize the native lands that Hollywood is on, including the Shumash tribe and a few others. And he left out Beverly Hills, which uh, is on the tribal lands of the Ashkenazi tribe. You know that, don't you? Sure. All right. Steve. <laughs> Steve Gregory is there every year. So, you know what? I think we were counting last night. This was my 19th or 20th. I, I, we, I, I was trying to figure out because I know I skipped a year. So, I think it's the 19th or the 20th I've been. Now, you're backstage with all the other reporters, right? Right. right. And I'm assuming they're a pretty cynical bunch. Well, or maybe we not. are. We are on the radio side because I'm in Radio Row. So there's there's a table that we're toward the end, and then you know they 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 shrink our our space more and more. This year they because you're on tribal lands. Well, no, because 
because radio is, uh, you know, we're we're being surrounded by an entire row of Instagram. I mean, the company Instagram was there last night. They gave an entire row to Instagram, and we're like, okay, this is where it's headed. And so, it's uh, you can tell that it's very digital focused. I mean, radio is still a very important part of what's going on, but I mean, the first Oscars ninety two years ago was broadcast on radio. Uh, so, it, so yeah, we're back there, and we're in what they call the interview interview room, which is considered backstage. And then there's a room which is photographers, and then there's the one-on-one rooms, and then there's the digital transmission room. So this is all taking place right behind the uh, Dolby Theater. So as soon as someone, when you see it on TV, when you see them grab their trophy, what they're doing is they're walking off stage. They're going to, um, they, they go, they kind of relax for a minute. They spritz up a little bit. They refresh. And then they go to typically a one-on-one room, which is going to be like your Good Morning America, CBS This Morning, those folks. Then they're going to go into the photo room. And then that's that's when you see all the photo sprays and everything. And then they the, the pose for their picture. And then they'll come to our room. Then when they're done, then they go back out to the audience. Unless they're a presenter or they're needed for something else, then they usher them out right away. But then the problem is that's like for us, you know, the show is over at 830 three and a half hours long, but we don't get, get out of there till almost midnight because th- they're bottlenecking all the, because the winners don't come backstage. They all keep going back out to the audience to listen and to watch, or they might be involved in the next award coming up. Then we have to sit and wait and sit and wait. And like last night, Joaquin Phoenix didn't come backstage. And so we have to sit there and literally wait. So after the show was over, we waited for almost 40 minutes before they came back hey, and said Joaquin so, Phoenix. So Joaquin coming. Phoenix did go to uh, the backstage area. No. He saying, never did. No, he never you came never, back. So you were never. But then again, is that typical or is it because Joaquin Phoenix is just a weird guy? Well, that could be all the above. Okay. I, I don't know what I don't know hey, what he's going through. Yeah. All right. So as I was watching, and I was thinking of you because you do this every year. <laughs> Uh, and there was a lot from my side. Ah, come on, with the <laughs> political statements. With uh, well, for the thank yous, just go on forever. I mean, as I said before, it was. Well, uh, so this is how we're reacting. Yeah, back please to, do. Because we don't go. Oh gosh, we don't. We go. Up oh, there's a gold nugget, and then then we mark it down because we're recording everything. So then we're like, oh, ooh, there's 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 my story. There was my second story. That's how we're looking at it. Because we're monitoring two separate audio feeds simultaneously. We're monitoring the show, and we're monitoring what's going on backstage. Now, let me tell you what gets really weird. So you have an instant instance last night where Joaquin Phoenix is talking on stage, very serious stuff. But then you've got this Taika uh, YTT backstage, and, and we're howling and laughing because he's got us rolling. And you've got this serious moment on stage, so people are trying to listen. And then you have the opposite, where you have someone backstage talking about you know how you know how inclusive Hollywood needs to be in its very serious moments, but then people are laughing out loud because they're hearing, you know, Steve Martin and Chris Rock on stage. So it's kind of a weird dynamic back there because you're hearing laughter constantly. Any surprises on your end? All the Koreans. I mean, everything. I could not believe how they came in and just upended Hollywood last night. I mean, I and I got to be honest with you, I was rooting for them. I really thought it was. I mean, the movie is phenomenal. Yeah, everybody says I have not seen it yet, it is, and they just. And I got to be honest with you, for full disclosure and transparency's sake, I have been addicted to K-dramas for the last year and a half. So, that said, I was really rooting for them because there are people in the cast of Parasite that are in other movies that I've been watching and other series I've been watching. So I was really, they really are good storytellers. And and Bong Joon-ho, he's just such a cool guy. And backstage, he spoke Korean the whole night. And then backstage, he drops the F-bomb. <laughs> 
You know what I love? What I enjoyed about him is that he doesn't take this so seriously, changing the world the way, for example, um, uh, Phoenix did, uh, Joaquin Phoenix did. It was just, uh, I, I thought it was, come on, really? You know, it's not the end-all, be-all. You're not, uh, this is not a Nobel Prize you're winning. This is Hollywood. He, uh, uh, King Jong Bung Bao, I'm very... (laughs) Bong Joon-ho. Yeah, him. Uh, Exactly. You know, first Oscar, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go out and drink. Second Oscar, I'm going to drink all night. Right. See, uh, that to me, that's that's wonderful. That's wonderful. He made history last night. Not only did he crack and break into the Hollywood uh, circuit, and, and now he goes back to his country as a national hero. I mean, the guy goes back to yeah. Korea as a national hero. Plus, his fee just uh, just tripled, quadrupled, quintupled. Um, and he is now <laughs> he is a, a four-time Oscar winner in one show. The guy is set for life. And that, I mean... I but mean, he deserves it. He's that talented, he, he's isn't he? He's that talented. Uh, what is going on behind the stages or backstage and what's going on with the Academy in general really is interesting stuff. Steve, you and I were talking about how it has changed. You've been covering it for 20 years. Yeah, I mean... And the challenges they have and what's going on. You know, the Academy, I think years ago, we were using the analogy that it's it's like turning the Titanic around. You can't. And Oscar's So White, that campaign a few years ago, really woke up the Academy. because, And at the time, it had its first African-American and its first female as the head of the of the governors, uh, the board of governors, uh, Cheryl Boone Isaacs, and she re- realized that there was a problem here, an inherent cultural problem with the academy because it was not representative of the community of the industry. And when Oscar So White came out, that was the big wake up call for them. And then you had the Me Too movement on top of that, and and it just just this whole thing just started to explode. So you know that the academy is sitting back there, having to figure out how do we change the face and the landscape of this organization. How do we change the way we do the show? How do we change the way we include people? How do we change all of this? Well, last night, you know, and my colleagues have been covering this as long as I have and some longer, they were all sitting there and we're talking. It's like, wow, it seemed like it all happened at once last night. It really did. I mean, all of a sudden you had more representation than you ever had, more people of color on stage, more people of color presenting. Uh, you had, I think, women won 33%. I think that was the figure that came out. 33% of the awards were won by women last night, which is a first. Um, so, I mean, and the one thing that got me was the female composer, and I was able to talk to right. her backstage. And I asked her, I said, did you realize you got a standing ovation by the most iconic male composers in the world? John Williams, um, you know, uh, Alexander Desplat. Well- yeah, well, she was, uh, you're talking about the one who won the Academy Award. She, she, yeah. yeah, she won for the uh, soundtrack to Joker. Right, which was yeah, wonderful. Now, who was, uh, here again, the woman conductor, the first time. Yeah. Now, come on, I don't know if you were watching. Well, yeah, of course I it was. It seemed so over the top. Well, it seemed, and I we got a lot of that last <clears throat> night, over the top. And uh, also the speeches, uh, the po- the politics. Okay, of the speeches. I always I always take the speeches and put them aside because that's an ex- that's a given. That's always going to happen. And the academy, once again, I have to tell people the academy does not restrict what people can and cannot say. They just give them their time limit, and that's. Ex- I mean, they hope it's a hard time limit, but it ends up being a suggested time limit. And if you notice early on, they the the times are stricter in the very beginning because they know as the evening goes on and the A listers start coming out, or I shouldn't say the A listers, the the bigger awards, 
then they give them more time, as you could, as was witnessed. Yeah, last and no, night. there was no music playing as as their time was up. Usually, you get the music that's Toward playing. The end. I didn't. I didn't hear that. But then, did you notice at the very end last night when the cast from Parasite was on stage, and there was that weird? And see, this is the thing about having a no host that is a little clunky, because Jane Fonda presented the final award of the night, Best Motion Picture. Then the cast of Parasite comes out, and uh, they're you know then Bon Jungo is doing his thing, and and then all of a sudden there's this weird sort of like pause. The lights go down on the cast, and then the the camera is supposed to go over to Jane Fonda. Well, then the audience was like, "Wait a minute, that's not cool," because they just broke a bunch of records and made history, and then they just and then I don't know if you noticed in there, people were screaming up, up, and then the camera shot goes over to Tom Hanks and his wife Rita Wilson, and they're. Everyone's starting to motion their arms to go up, bring the lights back up. So they brought the lights back up, and they were allowed to talk some more. So there were some really weird moments like that. But um, backstage, uh, you know, we always get the raw back there. I mean, we get we get people that come back there. But I noticed they're even limiting the time that we get with them backstage because I think they're trying to limit their vulnerability, to be honest mm. with you. And even the food. Uh, had, <laughs> now, usually I just ask for what kind of food did they uh that they offer, but even that had a political statement. Well, you know, we were being told early on that uh, the food was going to be be uh, out of respect for people that had certain food concerns and food allergies, that we were going to, they were going to increase the gluten-free options. There was going to be vegan options. And we're like, you know, people were just like, come on. I mean, it just, it just seems to seep into every little orifice of this, of this event. And I mean, they have enough variety there that I suppose, I mean, shrimp cocktail with nice big plump shrimp. You know, they got that every year. And then we had, uh, gosh, a variety of sandwiches with nice soft pretzel bread. And, you know, and then the, the, the chicken fingers that are rolled in toasted sesame. And then you've got the uh, pot stickers. Yeah, and but, then the the co- but then the governor's ball. And then the governor's ball, which is always, you know, top notch. Wolfgang Puck's been doing it for a couple decades. And, um, you know, that's kind of the, the, I mean, that's the over the top food. Um, Do they let, ever let you take uh, the leftovers? <laughs> well, uh, the typically what happens is the the, the workers, the the caterers yeah. and stuff, they get to they get to enjoy some of that when everyone leaves. <laughs> yeah, they do, which is probably illegal. They, hey, so uh, did you find this uh, the most interesting, the weirdest, the most the, the most different? Did it strike you as uh, you you had never seen anything like this? Or just as a natural progression of what you've seen over the years. Well, it's not. It wasn't a natural progression, only because there was such a culture shock. And, and going back to what you were talking about earlier, with it seemed like a lot of it was over the top. A lot yes. of it. So, so I guess the question would be: So how should the academy handle it? So, should, so should they only do one little shocking thing a year, or, or, or are they in such? I think they're in such a hurry right now, and there's so much pressure that they've got to change so much. And basically, what we're talking is about. Uh, look at that opening number. That opening number, and you had um, was it uh, Janelle Monet? Yeah, who who after started her song, I'm I'm uh, a black woman and I'm queer. I'm a right. queer black woman, so, and then you knew immediately. Okay, this was going to go an interesting an interesting right. well, direction. Look at the pre show. ABC had hired Billy Porter, and it, and you know here you have a man dressed in a you know in a long flowing gold gown on ABC. And you know right off the bat in the pre-show that this is this is going to be a different show. It's going to be completely different. All right, Steve. Thank you. You got uh, it. Bud. We'll do this certainly again next year. This is KFI AM six forty. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.